true. And then there were some tax collectors and sinners who were listening to him. They had counted the cost and they were paying attention. And it says in Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I'm a little confused. Aren't we all sinners? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Uh, But these were particularly odious sinners. Uh, Wait, aren't we all? Yes. Yes, we are. So, but the religious leaders of that day were complaining um, that Jesus hung out with the wrong people. And he even ate with them. You know what it means when you eat with somebody? That means you approve of everything they stand for, right? No. But that's what they thought. The problem was, um, if you associate with, they'll corrupt us. They'll bring us down. They'll bring Jesus down. How could he be pure and associate with those kind of people? I'm sure some of you have had parents who may at one time in your growing up have said, I'm not sure that's going to be, that person's going to be a good influence on you, right? Why would they say that? Because they know that we oftentimes become like our friends, especially when we're younger. So this was the uh, assumption, uh, criticism of Jesus for hanging out with the wrong type of people. And Jesus uses their criticism as an opportunity to show what God really is like and uh, how he relates to us sinners. So here's the rest of this passage, um, verse uh, 3 through 10. Then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, have you ever lost anything you really uh, valued? Um, I told you about my mechanical pencil a while back. But uh, I also lost, (laughs) I was going on a bike ride and, uh, you know, you're wearing a helmet, and you have glasses on, and start to sweat. It's kind of warm out, even though it was early in the morning. And the glasses were getting in the way of we wiping the sweat off my forehead. So I took the glasses off and put them in my pocket and kept on my way. And then I stopped a ways down the road to uh, drink some water and felt in the, oh, my goodness, the glasses are not in my pocket. And it could be anywhere in the last five miles. So I'm slowly riding back, looking off to the side of the road, Asking God, help me find my glasses. Glasses can be replaced, right? It's not like they're really valuable. But to me, because I have like 2,400 vision, if I take off my glasses, is anybody out there? Um, any case, I'm winding my way back uh, Russell Creek Road. And sure enough, this guy comes along from the other way. And his first question is, are you looking for your glasses? <laughs> And I thought, nice touch, God. That's pretty sweet. He says, yeah. He, he, it takes another mile and a half or so. And they're sitting right in the middle of the road. 
So I'm grateful I found my glasses. I'm grateful that nobody ran over them. I'm grateful that God had this guy coming behind me that, uh, that noticed they were there. So anyway, I really appreciate that about God is, the, is his uh, sense of helping us find things. So in this passage, the main point is that God doesn't simply condemn people and say, you're all going to you-know-where. Wait, it's okay to use that word without swearing, right, in church? Anyway, you're all going to heck. Um, He doesn't just write people off. The Pharisees expected that he would write off these other people, the tax collectors. They had taken advantage of their own people. They had abused their power. They had done wrong to other people. The sinners, I'm not sure who he's talking about there, but I can imagine, as you can, Anyway, they expected that God would write these people off. They're going to hell. What can they do about it? That's too bad. Anyway, moving on. They even had a phrase that uh, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who is destroyed. Now, that goes against Ezekiel. God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But uh, in this passage, you have, let's see if we can try it here. Shepherd counts his sheep at the end of the day and discovers that one is missing. And then the sheep may have wandered off as probably hungry, lonely, and scared. And where could it be? In those days, there were no fences. Uh, you might have a commun- com- communal flock where everybody is, okay, you're the two shepherds and you're going to take care of them. And there, you, might, uh, you might get eaten by predators. You might fall off a cliff. You might wander where there's no water. There are all sorts of things that could happen to sheep. And I'm sure the sheep was just following along the the grass and this looks good this looks interesting not paying attention and uh, eventually looks up and there's nobody around so God went looking for the lost sheep he didn't just sit there and say okay if the sheep comes back and apologizes and grovels before me then I'll consider forgiving it that's what some religious people wanted Jesus to do You people don't know what kind of sinners you are. Well, yeah, they do. They really do. So in this one, um, God is kinder than men. This is something you don't hear very often today. So he finds the sheep, and he brings him home. It's no problem to carry him on his shoulders. I love these two pictures. The artists have tried to capture uh, the shepherd that cares for that sheep. And is so happy that, uh, that he's alive and bringing him home. I don't see him berating the sheep in these pictures. I don't know. And then the second parable is about a woman that realizes there's a, a coin that's lost. And this is not liking, like losing a quarter or a, a dime. Uh, this was a day's wages for a worker. So I don't know. Imagine 100 bucks, And what it means to people who are poor who are living on the edge is you might go without, you might not eat today. That's what it means. So this woman, in those days, the houses were dark. There was one tiny little 18-inch window. They would uh, tamp down the earth oftentimes in these poor houses, and they'd put dried reeds over it. Um, And it was just exactly like looking for a needle in a haystack if you're going to try to find a a coin. So in her case, uh, she hopes to find the coin uh she's gonna sweep and sweep hoping to catch a glint of it right hoping to catch the metal um perhaps uh, she'll be able to get it um she brings in a lamp to try to bring light into the area and finally she finds it 
Now there's another possibility for this coin is in those days women didn't wear rings on their fingers to to uh, denote marriage. They had a headdress made of ten silver coins strung together by a silver chain. And this was the same thing as saying, I'm married. So it, if imagine you're losing one of those coins, this is your wedding ring. This is so valuable to the woman that even if she owed debts, they couldn't take her headdress from her. This was, this was a symbol of her love and her relationship uh, to her husband. So you can imagine why she would be looking so hard for it uh, if she had lost it. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 15 that the joy that these two people have over finding what is lost is just like the joy that God feels when he finds us, when we've been lost. Now that's a pretty interesting view of God. What is God like? He searches for us. He looks after us. Sometimes we portray our journey toward God as, I looked everywhere, and then I tried this, and then I tried that, and it's all about us. And if you look back on your life, even though I didn't receive the Lord until I was 18, I can see people that God was using to draw me to him. I can see people that gave me the gospel. I said, no thanks, when I was 15 and 16. It wasn't some great struggle on my part. It was God pursuing me and drawing me to himself. Well, I wanted to show you an example of someone who was lost, and yet uh, God searched for him and found him, and that was King David. And uh, if you'll take a look at Psalm 51, this uh, psalm is one of my favorites, and it has shown generations of sinners uh, the way home. It's been great in my life to go back over it. But the context, um, if you remember, the, the uh, subset verse is uh, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So King David had stayed away from battle. He'd committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba and then murdered Uriah to cover it up. So is this guy going to be written off by God? I mean, God could legitimately say, David, that's it. You're no longer a man after my heart. You're condemned. I'm not going to put up with this. And he would have been just in doing that. But David can't hide, from, hide his sins from God. And God sends a prophet named Nathan to reveal David's sin publicly. Finally, David acknowledges his sin. And sometimes we do things, I do things that I can excuse I didn't mean it. Um, somebody else made me do it. But other times, it is clearly me. It is I that have done something wrong. I can't get out of it. And that's one big area in life is, what do you do with that? What do you do with real guilt? I'm not talking about blaming your mother. I'm not talking about blaming anybody else. Sometimes we do things that there's real guilt because we've done something that we know is wrong. So in David's case, in verse 1 and 2, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David publicly confesses his sin before God and the people. He writes it as a song, right? So he's publicly telling everybody, uh, this is what I did. He's got a stain that he can't get out. He's tried what? Spot remover? He's tried tide? Gain? What else are we using? Anyway, that's what we have. Um, <laughs> everything else, there is no one else who can deal with his real guilt. Nobody can take it away. 
This is one of the things I love about God. Where else are you going to go to be forgiven of the things you've done that are wrong? Truly forgiven. So we have an enemy, the devil, and the devil wants us to hide. He wants us to withdraw. He wants us to isolate. He wants us to be embarrassed by our sin. God wants us to publicly confess it. I mean, David was publicly confessed. He wants us to confess it to God, turn from it, and then uh, use it as an example of God's grace for others. God forgave me, David says, and he can forgive you. God is restoring me, and he can forgive you. He can restore you. So David says in verses uh, 3 and 4, For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified uh, when you judge. He can't get away from it. It's always before him. It Ultimately, all sin is against God. I know that he committed sin against uh, Uriah as well, but he's broken trust and fellowship with God. That's what our sin does in our lives. In verses 5 and 6, I don't think he's blaming his mother when he says, I surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. I think he was saying it's part of my nature. Um, it, sin goes to the core of his being. Uh, it's who he is. And so he's, he's not blaming somebody else. And then in verse 7 through 9, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. There's a huge gap between what God desires and David's behavior. Again, only God can clean, can clean David up. There's no other way. Sin brings guilt. It brings sadness. It takes away our joy. And our method, I'm just going to say my method in dealing with this, is to try to substitute anything else to take away the pain and the guilt. And you can think of anything you want that people try. People don't like feeling guilty, and so you want to get rid of it, so what? You can try alcohol, you can try drugs, you can try sports, you can try porn, you can try how many other things, good things even, to try to take away that sense of guilt. But it still remains. It's always in front of us. Sometimes we pursue these things for years. Sometimes we forget about God and don't realize God is pursuing us and wants us to be forgiven. And, and it ruins lives. It ruins relationships. And that's not, the core thing is not trying to find something to make you happy. It's dealing with guilt. It's dealing with real sin. I want to ask you, if you reach a point in your life where you're on this track, where you're running away from God, I want you to remember David. I want you to remember Luke 15, that God is pursuing you to draw you back to him. I want you to read through this psalm, confess, and then find some other believers that can help you be completely restored. So David um, asked for a miracle in verses uh, 10 through 13. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. So the, the miracle that David's asking for is a new heart. 
the biggest problem I have when I'm going down this path is I don't want to give up my sin. I don't feel like it. <laughs> um, I don't want to be in God's presence because it magnifies my sense of sin. It is my heart that needs fixing. It is not enough to simply confess, I need repair. I don't know if you've, uh, when you've gone to a doctor for a checkup, they'll bring out a stethoscope and they'll listen to your heart. And it always amazes me what they can hear with that stethoscope. Um, would you want your doctor to tell you if you had a valve that wasn't closing? Would you want him to tell you if you had a heart murmur? Well, of course. Well, God has a better stethoscope than that, doesn't he? And he knows, he does a heart check on us, and he says, oh, man, need a little repair there. I think we've got to go under uh, 12 hours of surgery <laughs> for this one. But David is, uh, is someone that has realizes, I've confessed my sin. Now I need to be restored. My soul is messed up. I need to be uh, remade from the heart, from inside out. So God can not only forgive us our sin, he can, he can cleanse us, he can make us new again. This is uh, one thing. When I, um, when I became a Christian when I was 18, um, that was the feeling I felt when I received Jesus. I had this huge weight of rocks that was on my shoulders of hatred and anger and pride. And one of the things I loved about that feeling was that all went away. I felt like a kid again. It was, it was just terrific. Every time we get forgiven, it's terrific. So um, David had seen in King Saul's life that uh, Saul had gone away from God and had not turned back to him. And in, I think it's First uh, Samuel 16, um, the spirit departed from King Saul. He left him. So that's why David prays this. Um, according to uh, John 15, uh, he's not going to take his spirit from us uh, today. But uh, David had lost delight in doing God's will, and he asks for joy again. He's not going to be just grim and bear it. He, uh, he wants to be filled with that joy, and he wants to praise God. In verses 14 and 15, Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. In, uh, in sin, it, it stops our mouth from praising God. We, we don't feel like we're worthy, which we aren't. Um, and one of the things on the road to recovery is after we've been forgiven, uh, after he begins to heal our heart, is to praise him. This helps with the healing process, to praise him for his goodness, or for forgiveness. And the whole psalm is a picture of David praising God. Obviously, um, this, the whole congregation sang this in Israel. Um, and David is not trying to escape the, uh, the consequences of his sin. Again, it's the real guilt that bothers him. Sometimes I've noticed that uh, it takes hearing we're forgiven more than once. It takes somebody else saying to us, you are forgiven. It, it takes me hearing, and depending upon somebody else's faith, that, uh, yes, God has forgiven us. And sometimes you need to hear it from someone else uh, to confirm it. David longs to worship God completely and freely, and he has moved from confession to praise. In verse 16 and through 19, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We say this rather than that. Um, They would say not this but that. (laughs) So God had set up the sacrificial system to deal with sins. Uh, What you did was you brought an animal. uh, You put your hands on the animal. The priest would would slit the animal's throat, and it would die in your place. That was the whole system that God had set up until the sacrifice of Jesus completely uh, paid for all of our sins. Well, David's not saying that that whole system should be scrapped. What does God want out of that system? He wants your heart. He wants your heart to change. Yes, yes, we need to follow through with uh, confession. But um, God really wants a broken and contrite heart. That's what God really desires. And then David's prayer of confession and praise becomes a prayer for the entire nation. The whole nation is going to do this. Jesus asked this question a couple times in the Gospels. I'm trying to remember where it was in Matthew. Uh, But he says, go find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go find out. He doesn't say. So I'm going to ask you guys to look that up too. Go find out what it means. It's right here in the psalm, right? So God is not like the religious leaders thought. He is not distant and aloof. He is not cruel or uncaring. He doesn't demand that we come groveling to him on our knees or reluctantly, grudgingly forgive us. The religious leaders of those days thought that God had written off these particular types of sinners, and God had not written them off. God is still seeking the lost today. The question I'd like to ask you this morning is, do you want to be found? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that uh, you never give up on us. We thank you that it brings you joy uh, when you find us. So Lord, we commit our way to you. We, uh, We know that there are times when we stray from you, And we thank you that uh, being the good shepherd you are, you'll draw us back. Pray that we'll remember this uh, during those times and bring it to our memory. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to remind us and to keep us uh, convicted uh, when we've turned away from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I guess we're dismissed. Thank you.